Well, thank you, Anna, for her reading, and good morning, everybody. Welcome to Twin Cities Church, if you are uh, visiting with us this morning. We are nearing the end of our series here in the Pentateuch. It has been since last fall when we started in Genesis, and now we are, this is the second to last week in Numbers before we hit into Deuteronomy. And I mean, it's, it's been great. I hope you guys have enjoyed it as much as the ministry team has to just be reading and studying the Pentateuch. I mean, the, the, when we say the word Pentateuch, that just means the, the first five books of the Bible. And those first five books of the Bible is one complete story. It's the foundation story of the people of God. And the rest of the Bible just plays off of those first five books of this foundational story. And as we've seen throughout these weeks and months, I mean, God has been very consistent from the very beginning, calling his people to himself, promising his love and his faithfulness and deliverance to his people despite their sin. That through these generations and generations, that one day there will be a promised child who will undo everything that has been wrong. And then through this time of God's continual provision, care, and deliverance for his people, we just see time and time again Israel's failures and their lack of trust in the Lord, their grumbling and complaining. And, it, and at this point, after Exodus, and now by the end of Numbers, right, you're kind of like, all right, I get it. These people are the worst, and I understand why God wants to move on from them. I would never be like them. I would never grumble and complain the way they, they do. And so you, you get this constant repeating of the failures of Israel to the culmination last week when George Frisch, I mean, to the point where God says, fine, you don't get to go into the land, right? which is just devastating if you, to the people of God. They've, God has taken them out of Egypt. He has delivered them from slavery. He has brought them through the desert. Now they're right on the cusp right, of going into the land. They sent in the spies. This was last week. They come back and the people say, no, right? We, we don't, they don't trust God, that God can do it for them. They openly rebel against him. And God says, fine, this generation, you're never going to go in. Next generation will be the generation that gets to go into the land. Now, they've got 38 more years then of wandering around in the desert, and they'll never get to go in. And the people know this. We've got 38 more years of this, and we're never going to go see that promised land. And you get to the text this week, and it looks, again, very familiar. So, yeah, they're wandering the deserts. They don't have water. They start grumbling and complaining. They grumble and complain to Moses. But we know, we've read these stories before, we know that really they're grumbling and complaining about God. And there's still no faith on the part of the people, right? The people won't have faith in God. And again, God graciously intercedes on behalf of the people. He provides abundant water for them. Like he has time and time again, he continues to provide and give for his people. But this time, instead of God's judgment against the people, and then Moses interceding on their behalf, God gives his judgment against Moses and Aaron. I mean, it's, it's kind of a bombshell if you're reading. All of a sudden, you find out that Moses and Aaron are now getting punished. They are not going to be allowed to go into the land either. This whole first generation won't be able to go into the land, and now Moses and Aaron won't be able to go into the land. And again, as a reader, it's fairly shocking. I mean, we understand why the people couldn't go in after all this constant grumbling and complaining, constant grumbling and complaining, and open rebellion against God, but now, but Moses doesn't get to go in? Like, what has he done to deserve this? And Aaron, you know, why? 
and why is Aaron lumped into this as well? It seems like if anyone should just get punished for this incident, it should just be Moses. That they're losing the promised land because Moses hit a rock with a staff. Which again, if, you're, if we're keeping the whole story in mind, that's what God commanded Moses to do in Exodus. Like this whole story happened in Exodus before where they came to the land and they didn't have it and God commanded Moses take the staff and hit the rock and water would come out. And so Moses hits the rock and water comes out again, but this time Moses gets judged for it. And it seems very, very harsh. Now the text explains what's really going on here. And it's not about hitting the rock, but rather... Moses explains it to us as the author of the Pentateuch, right? He's describing his own failure and God's punishment of him. And he he says it here, because, this is God's words to Moses, right? Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. It wasn't his actions that led to the judgment, but it was his disbelief in God. Because you did not believe in me. And when we look at the narrative and we think about this life that Moses has lived and where Israel is and where Moses and Aaron is, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, at this point of Moses' life, he's, got, he's in his 80s. He has been doing this for a long time. And he is beaten and worn down. He has been dealing with this constant grumbling and complaining and rebellion of the people against him for years. And the text starts at the very beginning of the chapter, right? It's a, it's a big verse there with the death of Miriam, his sister. That's not a small thing that Moses is recording. His sister died. She was the leading woman of Israel. I mean, you think through the narratives how important Miriam has been within the stories, her singing, her dancing, her leading, her support of Moses and Aaron. You know, she is right there with him, and she's died. She died, and the nation is weeping. Moses is hurting personally. And you get this just constant echoing of the people. Why did you take us here? And he also, if you think back to this last judgment of the people, he also now knows, I've got 38 more years with these people. Okay, I don't get to bring, even if I did get to go into the land, it's not going to be with this, more, this generation. So I've got to, if he's in his 80s, right, he's got to be thinking, all right, I'm going to be in my one, I'm going to be over 100 by the time I do get to get into the land and with that next generation. I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty beaten down. And then I think there is something specific and significant to this God telling him that he's supposed to speak to the rock instead of striking the rock like he did before. It it just doesn't feel very powerful. If you think about Moses' life thus far and all of his moments of leading the people in God's provision, I mean, he's done some pretty powerful things where he gets to stretch out his mighty arms and hold up his staff and strike things. And people, I mean, these... And now God at the end here is saying, I want you to go up and I just want you to speak to this rock and water is going to come forth. It does seem difficult to believe or to do, especially if hitting the rock worked before. Why mess with what's broke? You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I am tired of these people. I'm tired of where I am in my life. I'm just going to go up and I'm going to strike this rock. And you hear it in his voice when he says to the people, 
you know, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock, right? In that Hebrew narrative, it's, it's very, oftentimes it's these short little phrases that reveal what's in people's hearts. I mean, for Moses, he just views the people not as God's people, but just as rebels. Like, I am tired of you. Do you want me to bring water out of this rock? Fine. I'll give you the water that you want. Not acknowledging God or calling on God's help, but rather taking credit for himself. And he strikes the rock twice and water comes forth. I think what we see here with Moses is just a tired, weak man who's just done with a lot of things. He has been faithfully trying to serve the Lord and lead these people, and it has not been going well. And he's going to take matters into his own hands. In the face of the constant sin and constant disappointment, Moses stops trusting in God, and he trusts in himself, which is sin, which is lack of belief in God which is what Moses exemplifies. Moses and Aaron are shown to be just like the rest of Israel. Which again, as a careful reader, we already know, especially Aaron, right? We know this is not, I mean, Aaron's getting lumped in here, but Aaron was told too to speak to the rock as well. But we know Aaron's story. We know that there has been issues all along for Moses. There's been issues all along for Aaron. And then right here at the end though, God makes a point to demonstrate to Moses and to the people this lack of faith on their part. Again, it's dovetailed or back-to-back with the failures of the people. It's a fairly devastating blow to the hopes of the reader. Right? Again, we could get to the place where we understand why that, those people can't go into the land. Fine, the people are terrible. But Moses can't go into the land either? And if Moses can't make it into the land, who can? I mean, who among the nation... What possible hope do they have that anyone is going to be good enough to get into this land? We've gone through one generation, they've all failed, and God says, nobody in this generation. All right, and even Moses and Aaron, they can't get into the land. What possible reason now do we have hope that anyone is going to make it into the land? How do we know that second generation is even going to make it anyone, if this is the trajectory that we're on? And this narrative really stirs up for the reader I, a lot of questions. This is really the beauty of the Bible, that it really isn't in a book of kind of things to follow or advice or this is it, but rather these stories and these narratives that really force us to ask some really profound questions and to see things for what they are. I mean, why would Moses record his own failure if he is the author of the Pentateuch? Why demonstrate this so clearly to the, to the reader? Why even include this story, or why would God do this? Like, what, How would the story be different if Moses and Aaron were allowed to enter the land, if they didn't receive this punishment from God? And also, if we're to compare, so both Moses and the people both receive the same punishment, but their reactions are vastly different between the two chapters as well, where the people weep and beg and cry and rip their clothes and go try to take the land anyway, and Moses, it seems like he doesn't do anything. In fact, he just continues to lead the people, even after this devastating news. And so in a lot of ways, the narrative is really going straight for the jugulars for a reader of like what you thought was happening is not, what you were hoping for is not, what are you going to do with this picture of who God is and what we're looking at? 
it's not dealing on the surface. We have, a, we have a tendency, we want to read narratives in the Bible really on just surface levels. Okay, Moses hit the rock, and now he can't go into the land. So I guess the lesson, or if we're doing a Bible study, it's don't hit rocks, or, you know, don't, it mean, something like that, otherwise you'll get punished by God. But I mean, the text is really clear. No, this has nothing to do with the rock, or hitting a rock. This has everything to do with faith and hope. With hopes and fears and especially now these narratives back-to-back of the failures of the people and the loss of their hope and the failure of Moses, but he doesn't seem to have lost hope, even though he is an absolute abject failure as a leader and as the the savior of the people. He has failed and is not going to enter the land. And so it really forces us to really address some of the hopes that we had as readers as we're reading, the hopes we have in our own lives, and really this, this issue of failure. Right? I mean, Christianity is really probably the only religion in the world that has the guts to deal with failure in such a real way. I mean, we tend to think of life as one big test. It's how we live. It's how we operate. We live with this picture of always being tested and a constant fear of failing. <laughs> and being found out to be a fraud or to be a failure. We think that if we fail, we will receive punishment. And if we succeed, we will get benefits. We'll get rewards. All of life is just this constant, do what is right and good things will come. If you mess up, you will get punished. And so we live with that, with that constant pressure, with that constant testing or feeling like we're being tested all the time in all social circumstances and everywhere, at work, in relationships, in society, just in general, right? We just feel this constant weight of being tested. And so we strive and we feel this, this, this I mean, it's, right? Science tells us, culture tells us this, right? Only the strong survive, survival of the fittest. You have to be strong. If you don't learn from your mistakes and get better, what good are you? You've got to get stronger. You have to be better. If you want to please yourself, others, if you want to have a good life, you've got to be strong. And if you fail, you better learn from those mistakes and not do it again. But you've got to get better and better and better and better. And so we live then in this constant vacillating between being afraid of failure or feeling like a failure. I think those are really the only two options. I don't think any of us actually feel like a success. Right? Even those who do or are successful in the eyes of the world are living in constant fear of losing that success. The moment you've accomplished something or you feel like you've accomplished something, then you have to protect it. So we're either in the state of just fear of failure or actually feeling like a failure and wallowing in our regrets and our guilt and our shame And it's difficult. We feel really, really good when we feel like we're passing the test. We feel great as long as we're passing. And then we feel bad when we feel like we're failing. And our sense of self, our confidence, our hope, our happiness is completely tied to how successful everything in our life is going. If work is going well, I'm feeling good. If family life is going well, I'm feeling good. 
if my, whatever, right? You fill it in. But this, like, this is what success is. And as long as I am succeeding in life, I'm doing great. And if I am not doing well in life, I'm doing terrible. And this is really this default setting in the human heart, right? Like all of us have this as that natural response to the way the world is. We want to earn what we have. We're constantly striving, making a name for oneself, right? We've seen this through the Pentateuch. This, was, this is Genesis on, right? The issue within Israel, the issue for Moses and Aaron, the issue for all of creation is that we want to make a name for ourselves. I want to prove that I can do this. I can be my own God. I can be my own savior. I can do stuff. I deserve stuff. I'm going to do it on my own. And so we strive, and it leads then to really the experience that we all have, and which Israel has as well. But this experience, it's really, really the constant feeling of comparing ourselves to others, boasting in our accomplishments, belittling the accomplishments of others, going through these highs and lows, the feelings of depression, bitterness, and resentment. It just feels like life becomes this constant pressure cooker of testing and comparing then. Because since we're so fragile and we feel this need to never be a failure or this fear of failing or being found out to be a failure, we're, we're really good then at insulating our lives or comparing our lives in some ways to make sure that we present ourselves as doing really well, right? We're always looking at other people's lives with this way of saying, well, at least I'm not, or I'm doing better than, it's this just constant boasting and comparing. And we bring that default setting to our understanding of God and to the Bible, Right? And it's amazing how easy it is to slip into that mode as we read the Bible, that we feel like this is, this is how God works too. God is constantly testing us. God is constantly waiting for me to fail and disappoint him, and then he's going to punish me. That really, that's the story of the Bible. That faith is this giant competition as well, that you have to earn and please God. And if you don't, there will be punishment. When we read the story of the Exodus, when we read the story of God's people, it's easy to kind of read it and believe that it's a picture of God testing his people. Like God has brought them out into the desert just to test them, to see if they'll follow him, if they have faith. And if they have faith, he's going to reward them. And if they don't, if they mess up, he's going to punish them. But Moses is really clear He's really clear in the writing of the Pentateuch here. And last week especially when he talked about when God really complains about Israel, it's not because of their failures, right? He says, why have these people put me to the test? God hasn't been testing the people in the desert. The people in the desert have been testing God. Moses is testing God. Aaron is testing God. Our lack of faith is not, we're not in this pressure cooker from the Lord, but rather He's the one who's on trial in the Pentateuch. Will God be faithful to his people or will he not? Is God's promises really going to be true or are they not? And through the Pentateuch, we have found time and time and time again, God passes the test and is faithful to his promises and to his people, especially in the midst of their failure. 
Like this constant repeating narrative of the failures of the people and of the leaders is not some object lesson in morality saying, don't be like them, but rather it's demonstrating to us who God is, that we worship and believe in a God who is faithful to us in good and in failure, that failure does not disqualify us from the love and faithfulness of God and his plans and his purposes. This is not a surprise to God that his people failed. It's not a surprise to God that Moses and Aaron failed. God is demonstrating himself in the midst of their failures, who he is, and his love and his faithfulness to his people. He's proving himself time and time and time again. Because the message of the Bible is ultimately this good news about who God is. Right? Again, if we just kind of step back, because it's easy with that default setting in our heart, we, everything's about us. Everything in life is about us because we're striving and trying to make a name for ourselves, working really hard, trying to earn, earn, earn. And we make the Bible about us. And we make the, the story of the Pentateuch about us. And what can I learn from this? What do I have to do? Just show me. Give me the advice. We're constantly looking, ultimately, for just advice. How can I be a success? What, is it, what do I need to do? God, just lay it out for me and I'll try to do it. But the Bible isn't about us. It just isn't. The Bible is about God. And he uses people and people's stories to show us who he is. And throughout the Pentateuch, he is showing us who he is. That at its heart, the Bible is not a list of advice or rules or things to follow or on how to be a success. Right? We often come to the Bible, though, looking for that. It's true. We come to Christianity. I mean, if, if many of us are honest about like, why we came to Christ, we come because we're looking for help. I am weak and powerless and a failure, and I need some help. (laughs) And that's why we come. But what we find is not a list of rules to follow. What we find is a God who redeems and loves and clothes us in righteousness. The Bible is not written for the strong on how to become stronger. The Bible is not written for the weak for how to become stronger. The Bible is written for the captive is what keeps getting, the people who are weighed down, who have come to the end of themselves, for the failure, which is all of us, which is what the Pentateuch has been going through to show time and time again. We are Israel. We are Moses and Aaron. We are failures. You have this repeated idea through the Pentateuch. It's stated by all the leaders. Moses is going to state it here in Deuteronomy when we get to that in the fall. Just warning Israel, you say you're going to follow God. You won't. He just tells them that, always. Like you, you say you're going to worship God, and you're not going to worship false idols, you're not going to go to idolatry, because the people always respond. In their failures, they respond and say, Lord, no, we, we, we promise. Right? Just after the golden calf, okay, let's build that tabernacle. This is great. I promise I'm going to worship you. We're only going to be dedicated to you. And, but Moses continually tells the people, you won't. You won't do it. And we've seen it. And so it's this repeated statement to the people that they won't worship God fully. They're going to fail. And then we also see it through the stories. They continually fail to worship God. It's as if, right, the author of the Pentateuch is trying to get us to the place where we need to see that the whole point of the story is not that we will, at the end of it, be able to follow God, but rather get to the point where we will trust God. 
and have faith in God, that actually we need to get to the place, the reader needs to get to the place, Israel needs to get to the place where they really acknowledge, I can't do it. I need God to do it. Because I can't. I don't have the power. I don't have the strength. I can't do it. I have tried countless times. I can't. God, you have to be true. You have to fulfill those promises you're making because I can't do this anymore. I've tried and tried and tried. This has got to be you or it's never going to work. And that's where you get to at the end of the Pentateuch. That's where you get to at the end of Moses. Ultimately, this faith in God, this ultimate news that God truly is going to be faithful to his promises. And for us, for Moses and for Israel, like George talked about last week, really what faith is, right? Faith is just is trusting in God's goodness. Even when our fears, even when we don't believe it, right? You just trust. I trust God. And that's been the message all the way through the Pentateuch. Will you trust God? And here, it really is. Will you trust God? And for many of us, it's easiest to trust God when things are going well, and it's much harder to trust God in failure, especially sin, because that's what Moses is doing. That's what the people are doing. It's not just failures of life where you're like, my job didn't work out, but this repeating sins that keep coming up again, this inability to put your trust in God, it's really hard to have faith in those moments because in those moments, we feel this intense weight of guilt and shame, which the people did, and which is why they respond with always that, I want to do something to fix it. You know, if I got to build a tabernacle, I'll build a tabernacle. If I need to go take the land myself, I'll do it myself. But I mean, they want to fix it. And that's how we always feel in our guilt and our shame. I've continually sinned. I'm a continual disappointment and failure. I will just fix it. I want to fix it. But Moses doesn't try to fix it in his response. He trusts God that his promises are going to be true that there will be the child, there will be a generation that will dwell on the land. If I don't dwell on the land, I know one day I will, and I'll be with the Lord. He has hope in, in the security of who God is and his promises towards him and towards Israel. And for us, looking back on this side of Jesus Christ, we have the same. We have this hope and security knowing that God is true to his promises because we have Christ, who suffered and was tempted for us I mean, the only person who ever successfully passes any test is Jesus. And rather than get the credit, he gives it to us, dies in our stead, and gives us this life. I mean, the one faithful person, instead of taking the reward, he gives it up, and he comes, and he suffers, and he dies for us. I mean, this, this belief in God and trust in the gospel does change things. The author of the Pentateuch has been arguing for us, Moses has been arguing for us all the way through to live these wholehearted lives, to have faith, to worship God. And we've been talking about that a lot of like, what does that look like to live wholeheartedly, to be honest with the Lord? And I think, again, one of those areas where that's difficult to be honest is in our failure. It's really hard to be honest with ourselves and honest with each other and honest with God with the repeated failures of our lives. But what if we didn't have to be strong all the time? What if we didn't have to have it all together always? What if we didn't have to be a success 
What if it was okay to be a failure? What if it was okay to just be honest, wholeheartedly honest with God and with others? Because the reason we have that intense fear of failure and the difficulty of being honest is because we we fear for our reputation, the name that we're building for ourselves. If people find out, if people know my failures and my repeating failures, I mean, (laughs) it's all going to be lost, and I'm going to have to start over. I'm going to have to start over with these people. I'm going to have to start over, start over, start over. I can't start over. But what if your sense of self was dictated not by your actions, but by God's love for you? What if you weren't your failures? What if you weren't your successes? If neither of those things defined you as a person, but you were who God says you were, regardless of what you look like and whatever your actions have been and continue to be. The gospel empowers us to live wholehearted lives, where I can be honest about my growth. Because, I mean, I've grown. We grow. It's not like I'm always failing in the same ways. My failures just now take new turns, and I fail in different ways, much more hidden ways, but still failing. So I can be honest about the growth, and I can praise God for the way that I've matured and and grown. But also I don't need to hide my failures and my weaknesses, because those aren't me either. I can be honest. And I can see that the presence of sin, the presence of failing, is not a disqualification of being God's people. Moses is not kicked out of the people of God, out of God's love, out of the covenant. The people aren't even. That generation isn't. They just can't enter the land. There's consequences for sin and failure, absolutely. And many of us have experienced that through our repeated failures. We've experienced the consequences of those. But that's not a disqualification of being a child of God. It's not a disappointment to God. My repeated failure is not a disappointment. I am not a disappointment. Because God says I'm not. If I was a disappointment to God, he wouldn't redeem me through his son, Jesus Christ. I am beloved. That's who I am. Now, my repeated failure is just an opportunity for me to put my faith and hope in Jesus Christ, just as it was for Israel through the Pentateuch. Repeating failures so that they can learn to put their hope and faith in Christ, in this promised Savior and Messiah. We have to grow as a people of God to see the presence of failure and sin in our life is not an obstacle to God's plans and purposes in our life. It's not. It's the vehicle through which God is going to work in our lives. We have to be honest about it and bring it to the Lord. This is this wholehearted life where we say, this is an, I am not a disappointment. I do not have to hide I don't have to feel the guilt and the shame. Right, this is New Testament stuff. I know we're not in the Pentateuch anymore, but this, right, this is Colossians, this idea of like, right, the, the spiritual forces of the world, the devil, and the enemy, they are trying to continually remind God's people that they are failures and to make us feel weak and powerless. That's the goal. And the gospel is all about empowering and freeing us to remember who we are in Jesus Christ, that the spiritual forces have been disarmed. We are not disappointments. We are beloved children of God. We have the same power in us that's raised Christ from the dead. The presence of failure in our life, the presence of sin is not something to minimize, to hide, or to feel guilt and shame over. The presence of sin and disappointment and failure in our lives are opportunities for us 
to cling to God, to come to him honestly, honestly, to live wholeheartedly with him and with the community that God has given us. But that requires a real change of our mindset, of our renewing our minds. This is what the Pentateuch is going to tell us over and over again here in Deuteronomy. You know, after all this, you need to meditate on the law day and night. You need to write this on your foreheads, on your arms, put it on your doorposts. You need to talk about it when you're walking. Because that's the truth, right? Because we will revert back to that default setting so quickly. I have to make a name for myself. Oh, if people find out what I've been doing, it's, I, it's all going to crumble and I'm going to have to start over, right? That's the default. If we're, if we're not actively renewing our minds and remembering who God is and also remembering how many times he's proved himself, that I know he's not going to fail me in the future. If I really believe that and really am trusting in that, I can live this wholehearted life even in the midst of my failure. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we praise you and we worship you. There is no one like you. There is no God like you who loves and forgives. Lord, we confess to you just how selfish of a people we are, how often we revert to trying to make a name for ourselves, for doing things on our own. Lord, our our striving and our grasping, and ultimately, Lord, our just our lack of belief in you. Lord, just like Moses, we do not believe in you the way that we should, and we do not hold you up as holy. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. Who are we that you would love us so deeply, so much, that you would give us this new identity, that you don't view us through the lens of our failures or through our success, but rather that you view us through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, strengthen us and help us to experience and to know that love, to know who we are in you and to have hope that even in the midst of our wanderings and the desert life that we all experience, Lord, uh, Lord, that we would have faith and hope and confidence in you. Help us to live these wholehearted lives. We want to be honest, Lord. We just, we just are desperate to live honest lives where we're not hiding. So Lord, we come to you and we want to give you everything, all of our hopes and our fears, our successes and our disappointments. And Lord, we give those to you, and we trust you with our lives. Lord, thank you for your spirit that indwells us and is powering us and strengthening us as a church. Uh, Lord, guide and continue to lead. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.